welcome back to the Sharp End Podcast, a podcast aimed at minimizing future outdoor accidents by way of storytelling. Real people sharing real stories. I'm Ashley, the creator and producer of this show. This show is brought to you by Rocky Talkie. If you've been listening to the Sharp End for a while, you know that I love my mountain radios. These radios are extremely lightweight, durable, and they work in the extreme cold with a really impressive battery life. Plus, the waterproof hand mic accessory allows you to stow your radio in a pack and keep communications right on your shoulder in heavy snow conditions. I used these radios for four straight days of snow machining in single digit temps and my battery only went down to 70%. If you like discounts, you can get 10% off by going to rockytalkie.com slash sharp end. Thank you to the American Alpine Institute for sponsoring this episode. Most people know that the American Alpine Institute is a world-class climbing school and guide service that operates in six states and in 16 countries. But many people are not aware that the Institute is also a Washington State vocational school. AAI provides foundational training and continuing education for those who want a career in the outdoors as educators, instructors, rangers, guides, or wilderness rescuers. In addition to this, the American Alpine Institute accepts veterans benefits for vocational programs. Learn more at alpineinstitute.com. Today, I interviewed two climbing partners about an incident that happened in Yosemite National Park that resulted in a rescue from Yosar. They learned a lot from what happened and they're excited to share their story with you so you can learn not only what went wrong, but also what went right. I hope you enjoy. Well, hello, gentlemen. Welcome to the Sharpen Podcast. I did get to, I already met Grant a few days ago. And so for those that are listening to the Sharpen Podcast in order, you'll get to hear from Grant again in about 15 days for the bonus episode. So welcome back, Grant. Um, I will have you go ahead and introduce yourself to the listeners again, just in case they missed that episode. And then David will move to you and then you can go ahead and introduce yourself to, to the listeners. So welcome to the show, guys. Grant, go ahead. Hey, thanks for having us on the show, Ashley. It's really a privilege to be on the podcast this evening. This is really cool to have the opportunity to come here and, and share our story from Yosemite National Park on the show. I've been listening for years to the podcast and have learned a lot from, from the Sharp End podcast. And there's specific things I've learned on this podcast that will come into play in the story that we're going to share tonight. I never thought that I'd be the one here um, on the other side of the microphone. Most people don't. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's the way the cookie crumbles and just really hope that uh, maybe telling about this, this accident on Half Dome can maybe help somebody else learn a few things and uh, you know keep somebody else from going through what we did. So yeah, my name is Grant Breidenbach. I live in Boulder, Boulder, Colorado. Um, I'm 25 years old. I work in the outdoor industry in uh, marketing and sales. Um, I got into climbing in, in college and have kind of been a bit of an addict to it since and kind of progressed through from gym climbing to sport climbing to trad climbing ice. And, and then this past summer was a, a foray into, um, into big wall climbing with my climbing partner, David. Yeah. So that's kind of a little kind of overview on, on my climbing background, who I am. And we have David, your climbing partner, here with us today. So welcome to the show. David, go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm David, also from the Boulder area in Colorado. I'm in my you know mid-40s. I've been climbing since I was about eight. I started climbing uh, in the Salt Lake area 
I was really lucky. My brother introduced me to climbing and I was really lucky to uh, have a nephew who's a couple months younger than me, Scott Adamson, that many in the climbing community know. He and I grew up together with another person that hopefully is listening to the show, Isaac Caldiero, a lot of people know as well. Um, they went off to great things in climbing. I went to grad school and started a family. So Also great uh, things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my climbing career really slowed down during that time. And then um, for those who don't know, Scott Adamson died in a climbing accident in Pakistan about seven, six, seven years ago. And um, that one of the ways I kind of dealt with that and found a lot of solace and and purpose was to get back into climbing and to get back into it um, pretty seriously. And, and that's um, what I've been doing the last seven or so years when I met Grant at a climbing gym here in um, the Boulder area. I noticed he was a little bit stronger than me. I was used to climbing with people who uh, were a little more junior or a little less strong than me. And so I ended up being the one who usually was leading all the hard pitches and being the guide pretty much all the time. And I wanted someone that I could say, hey, can you take the hard pitch? And we could get into some harder terrain. So that's that's where we met. Yeah, it was really cool. And, and you know, I might have had a bit more, you know, physical strength at the time, but David had a wealth of knowledge that, you know, came from decades of climbing. So it was instantly this really cool kind of mentorship, you know, relationship where I was learning a lot about risk management, technical rope systems from from David. And I think I was also pushing him physically and we would, you know, trade off and seem to have our strengths. You know, he was a much better crack climber than I was. And we'd get on, on pitches, um, in say Rocky mountain national park. And I'd look up some daunting crack or, you know, maybe only a five, eight crack, but I'd be like, Holy cow, it looks awful. And I'd be like, David, can you, can you take the, the sharp end on that? And, uh, and he would, and then go on to some face pitch and I would, you know, walk right up and we made really good partners, kind of unlikely partners with the age difference, but we got to know each other really well, really quickly. Sounds like a beautiful partnership. Well, it's it's always special when the universe brings people like you guys together. So that's exciting. Happy to hear that. So you did allude to the fact that this incident happened in Yosemite National Park, which is in California, for those who don't know. Um, so about what what year? What, what was the date of the incident? What was the what was the weather like? Yeah, this happened in early July of this past year, 2023. Beautiful summer day, classic California weather, but. I think to really properly give the story justice, I think it makes sense to back up, you know, a couple months before that. So we both knew we wanted to set a big summer objective. And after looking at everything, we kind of settled on the regular Northwest face of Half Dome. It is a 2,200 foot route and 23 pitches, which is a lot bigger than anything either of us had done before. And so we got the training and, and maybe David, you can kind of tell a little bit about what we trained and kind of how we practiced. Yeah, I mean, this wasn't my first big wall. I'd climbed some stuff in Zion with um, my nephew and, and and his brother, Tommy. I'd climbed in Yosemite on on some smaller single-day ascents. We wanted to take it uh, slow and and bring a haul bag. I know a lot of people do it in a day. We we really wanted to take our time, spend the night on on the ledges. Um, so we, we knew we needed to get Grand up to speed on aid climbing and quick transitions. Spent a lot of practice hours. Uh, you know, I set up a thing in my garage where I could just practice getting um, really quick on on transitions, setting up belays, um, getting in and out of a belay, setting up the haul bag, hauling. Um, so we did a lot of that kind of stuff. We also practiced a lot of technical practice. So we practiced rappelling with uh, the haul bag. 
lowering out, practicing, you know, getting ourselves in and out of belays because it's a lot different when you're really far up and you've got really heavy bags. And um, so we we just spent a lot of time practicing before we left. And I think that practice served us really well as as we'll hear as we kind of get into the, the beans of it. So our basic plan was to, on day one, to drive into Yosemite National Park. We met up in the Bay Area. I flew into San Francisco. Um, we were going to sleep that night down in the valley at North Pines Campground, um, get kind of the full valley experience down there. Next day, we were going to hike up the Death Slabs, which are kind of aptly named. It's a it's about this 3,000 steepest hiking you can imagine that's pretty exposed. It's got fixed ropes. And it's sort of the direct way up to the base of, of Half Dome. And then that afternoon, we were going to p- fix pitches one, two, and three. And then on day three, we were going to ascend the fixed lines uh, that were already hanging from the night before on pitches one, two, and three. And then we were going to climb pitches four through 16 and then sleep on a ledge system called the Big Sandy Ledges that night. And then on the fourth and final day, we were going to climb pitches 17 to 23 and ultimately top out, hike down the kind of classic uh, climbing trail, the cables, and drive back to the Bay Area that evening. That was the original plan for the climb. And it is worth noting, it was a very hot week in um, Yosemite. You know, early July, it can get high upper 90s in the valley, but up when you're at Half Dome, it's really pleasant. So the weather was really nice. There's still a lot of snow left over from a very, very uh, heavy winter. Um, so the weather conditions were just optimal for us. Nice. And uh, we, we ended up being the only people on the wall when we got up there, which was really nice for a 4th of July week. It was pretty incredible. Yeah, we lucked out. Yeah. So the climb was was relatively smooth um, getting started. I had one hiccup where the haul bag got stuck at the base of pitch one and we probably lost 30, 45 minutes. David had to kind of go down the rope. He had just ascended, unstuck the haul bag and then get it up. And, and, you know, once we were hauling the bag, you know, we knew it was going to be difficult, but we're like, wow, you know, this, this is, this is challenging to get this bag hauled up. But basically I led uh, a pitch block of pitches four, five, six, and seven. And those, um, you wouldn't really notice if you looked at Half Dome from a distance, but there's kind of this subtle buttress feature that kind of is on the left-hand side on the, the lower half of Half Dome. And that's what the first thousand feet of the route go up. And you're kind of following crack systems up that section. And then you kind of stand almost on top of that buttress-like feature at the, at the top of seven. And then pitch eight basically crosses from that buttress feature um, over this sort of gully chimney-like feature and out onto the main face. And then the route really begins to traverse right through some technical aid climbing after that. And then eventually picks up a chimney system and continues up. So I finished my my block of leading at at the top of pitch seven. We were, we were a bit behind schedule for the day. We're super concerned, but I definitely was glad to, to finish my block. I was definitely surprised by how difficult the climbing was. Um, I mean, I, I knew, you know, Yosemite sandbag grades, especially on a, a classic route like this, but climbing with a quad rack and, and, you know, this hall line 
and the lead rope and, and, you know, really placing a lot of pro in the rope drag. I was like, wow, this is difficult. So moving a bit slower than expected, um, exerting a bit more energy, um, but got to the top of seven. And maybe David, you want to take it from there? Well, really quick. So what is this climb rated? It depends on whether you're free climbing or aid climbing it. So, um, if you're, if you're aid climbing it, like we were the, the hardest you have to free climb is about five, nine. We were planning to free climb some stuff in around five, 10 ish, maybe a smidgen harder, and then do some aid climbing, all clean aid, no, have no hammering pitons or anything. Um, but up, especially up higher on the route, there was going to be some, some hooking, um, putting kind of these thin metal edges on rock and, and weighting those and balance testing them, um, some bolt ladders, things like that. So technically, I believe, David, C2, is that right? 5.9 C2? Yeah, it's a 5.9 five, C2. If you were going to free it, I think it would be a 12D. 12, 12 Thank you. Okay. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead, David. <laughs> yeah, no worries. We we were lucky uh, to have one visitor um, on the route that day, um, two very fast climbers, cruised right past us. And uh, we got a chance to talk to him a little bit. It was uh, Cam and Jess from Yosar who were checking out the route. For those of you who don't know, a few years ago, a giant slab broke off of Half Dome. Two pitches. Yeah, two pitches full. And they wanted to check out the route that had been established since to make sure it was safe. And they said this was their first time checking it out. So they cruised past us. They were moving very quickly. They have a really nice system. They're professionals. Um, they do a really great job. They're the only other people on the mountain that day that will come back later in the story. So um, we, uh, I got out onto the the what's called fourth class terrain. There's this area where there's a lot of ledges and gullies. It's pretty easy stuff to move through, and I was excited to move through. It's the easiest pitch of the climb. I'm really excited to move through it very quickly. Um, got to a point where the terrain wasn't exactly what I expected it to be on the map. I was coming into some fifth class terrain and it was supposed to be, the whole pitch was supposed to be fourth class. So I pulled out my map and was looking around and making sure everything was good. And I said, I'm going to, you know, I had traversed right for a quite a ways and then up. And then I started traversing left. And if you do that when you're when you're climbing with that long of rope, you're going to have a lot of rope drag if you have a Z in the system. And I, I knew that was coming. And so I, I knew I had to remove one of the pieces below me or back clean that piece so that I'd have a straighter line. I was almost to what I thought was the, the end of the pitch. Um, looking back, I might have actually linked eight and nine together. Um, and so, uh, but I was getting close to that point. Um, end of that this section, moving pretty quickly, placing pieces relatively far apart because it was pretty easy terrain. In order to back clean the piece, it was just below my foot. I, I couldn't reach it without lowering down. So I put uh, a number three, a 0.03 cam in, which is a pretty big size cam. It's one that will definitely hold your weight. It's not a, a, a terribly small one. Um, and I was going to just weight it so that I could reach down and grab the the cam that was below my foot and clean up that line. Um, when I put the cam in, I'll, I'll be honest, I heard a little crackling noise. It wasn't enough to bother me too much, but I knew that I needed to move fairly quickly through this area. So we we were out of eye shot from each other. So we had a radio and we were radioing back and forth. And I said, Grant, I need to be lowered down a little bit. And Grant, do you want to tell what happens next from your perspective? <laughs> Yeah, so so David puts in this piece. He says, "Hey, you know, I'm going to I'm going to put in this piece." He says it looks like, you know, you might not have, have said it looks like good rock, but you know, if if you're putting in a piece, like I trust this guy, like he knows his his placement. So I'm like, "All right, he's putting in a piece. 
I'm going to lower him a bit. You know, the rope drag's terrible. And, you know, he's, he's struggling to make upward progress. He's going to lower down and grab this piece. So he puts the piece in, he waits the rope, and it doesn't come super tight just because there is so much rope drag in the system. It's going around a corner and zigzagging here, there, and everywhere, left and right. Um, but I let a little bit of rope out, and David starts to remove the piece below, which I, I believe is a number two cam. And all of a sudden, the rope kind of goes slack, and I just hear David start screaming and kind of yelling, oh no. And his scream is kind of way, way up above me. I didn't even realize he was that far up because we had been communicating in the radios. And his scream comes down, 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 down. And then his, his scream basically kind of abruptly stops when it's about level with me. So I know he's fallen a long ways. And the rope, I'm, you know, the whole time I'm expecting just a massive you know, whipper. I'm expecting the rope to just come super tight and get yanked into the anchor. But it, it, I mean, it never came really that tight. And so my first assumption was that the rope had been severed and that, that David had fallen a thousand feet to his death. And my shoes went flying off and some other materials. <laughs> yeah, the only thing I saw was basically because David's around this corner. I never, I never saw this accident ever. I've never seen you know this pitch. It's around a corner. And the only thing I saw is basically as David fell, some of the gear loops were torn off his harness in the fall. So I just saw some of our cams, his shoes, and basically his exploding water bottle flying out over Yosemite Valley. So I just see our gear completely detached, sailing out into who knows where. And so I assume David's also just completely detached. And, you know, it's just kind of this just like shocking, sobering moment that, you know, you don't even quite process at first. And so I get on the radio and I say, David, do you copy? You know, and I'm on my Rocky Talkie and, and David, do you copy? I get nothing. And I listen and I can kind of hear some like moaning around the corner. And I'm like, well, he's not dead yet, but he's, he's probably dying. And so I'm like, David, you know, yelling, yelling. And, and eventually he gets back on the radio. What happened is the radio was on one of the gear loops that blew, but on the Rocky Talkies, there's a tether. And I've always said, you know, put the tether on a different gear loop than the radio because the gear, the, the tether was on a gear that did not blow, so it was dangling about four feet below him. And he pulls in the radio and says, "Grant, I've just taken a huge fall." And then, so maybe David, you should say, tell, you know, share what that was like from your perspective. But but that's kind of what I saw, and and at least I knew that he was alive then. But I still didn't know the magnitude of the situation. Yeah. So basically, what what had happened is, is I started weighting that piece. Uh, I was fine. I didn't bounce test it or really put a lot of weight on it. I was just putting my body weight. Um, I was reaching down. And as I was reaching down, my head was kind of down. The rock above me shattered and the piece fell out and I dropped. I dropped about 10 feet and hit a ledge. But then the piece that I was fiddling with must have been halfway out and it blew. So then I went another 30, 40 feet. But it was a series of ledges and alcoves. So just picture pinball. I just bounced back and forth between all these ledges that are about three feet from each other. So when I landed, I landed hard on my back on um, the ledge and uh, it knocked the wind out of me. So Grant's yelling and doing all this and I couldn't talk. I was like, oh, you know, I'm fine. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then, you know, when I came to 
like was able to get up. I mean, it wasn't knocked unconscious, but when I like kind of got my bearings, I looked up and the piece above me was about 20 feet above me. And, um, and all my gears scattered all over the ledges just below me. Luckily, um, some of it was still there. I was bleeding a little bit. And then I started to, you know, just kind of get my bearings. And that's when I went looking for the radio. I hear it, but I couldn't see it. I pulled it up eventually as mixed in with all my other gear, pulled it up and said, uh, Grant, I think the climb is over. That's what he said. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and, yep. <laughs> and so at that moment, I couldn't put weight on my foot and I couldn't twist. And so um, I couldn't twist my back to the right or the left. But as long as I was staying straight, I was pretty okay. But uh, I had to go get all that gear. So I, I kind of crawled down a couple ledges, got all the gear. And then I looked up and I saw that piece and I realized I couldn't get back to Grant without removing it. So I did a series of these leapfrog things. And at this point, I'm like, I don't want to fall again. So I'm putting in a piece and then I climb up a little. And then I reach down and I pull the other piece and I put up another one and get that piece and lower myself down. And then I, with a you know, unable to put any weight on my right foot and unable to twist. I had to traverse all the way back across the pitch and get back to the top of seven on the seventh pitch. He basically tiptoes back across this kind of fourth class ledge, which I, I must say was just a game changer. If, if David hadn't been able to tiptoe across, because like I, I've taken rock rescue, you know, like, but they talk about how to do that. If it's dead vertical, you know, you go up, you pick somebody off, you establish the anchor, like, it's it's relatively straightforward. You get your muntum mule over hands, whatever. But they don't talk about how to do it if it's horizontal. Like we probably could have figured something out, but it would have taken a long time and a lot of improvising. So I, it was just a huge blessing that David was able to tiptoe back to the top of pitch seven. Nice skills. <laughs> So we get to the, yeah, we get to the bag and, you know, first thing I do is like first aid kit, right? <laughs> so we dig out the first aid kit, sitting right on top, take some ibuprofen. Um, I, I think the bleeding and stuff, it wasn't a lot of bleeding, you know. Um, Where were you bleeding? My hands, my arms, you know, not my head, surprisingly. Um, I was wearing a helmet, obviously, but it wasn't too damaged. I think I kind of, I, I don't know exactly how I rolled, but I kind of tumbled. and. Uh, it kind of looked like he'd been a bad bike crash, you know, it was like road rash sort of thing. But uh, at this point, you know, he said, well, we got to rappel down. I realized I lost my ATC, kind of the, the main belay device for having two rope. Oh, no. I lost that with all the gear that went. I had a, a kind of a gri-gri equivalent. It's a, a, um, a cinch. Um, and I said, well, I can rappel down one rope. I can't bring this bag down with me. I can't really put weight on my foot. So this rappel is going to be hard. I can't twist. I can't do anything but I'm going to try and lower myself down. I was feeling okay. There's probably a lot of adrenaline going on. Grant had the wisdom, and I think it came from listening to this show. Sure is, yep. <laughs> uh, to call Yosar right then. Wow. Um, and so before we did anything else, Grant, you want to talk about um, what happened there? Yeah, basically, you know, I knew that, that this situation was a little bit bigger than, than we were capable of. You know, even if we we're going to be able to rappel to the ground. You know, he clearly has a, a lower leg injury and a back injury, and we're not going to be hiking down these death slabs or even around the back of, of Half Dome. You know, we're going to need some sort of assistance from, from search and rescue, and it'd be better if they knew sooner rather than later. And so we called him up and just, you know, gave him a really 
honest explanation of, of the situation. We thankfully were able to get some cell service up on Half Dome, had a uh, satellite communication device as backup, but did not have to, to use that. And um, just basically let them know they, they instructed us to go ahead and begin the self-rescue process of retreat repelling the route down um, and to just kind of keep them up to date. And if, if conditions change for the worse, if, if, you know, things got really bad to, to touch base and they were going to begin developing a plan. Yeah. And, and one of the things that we had to think about is the top of the six pitch is a ledge and you can kind of sleep there. Um, we were trying to figure out, do we want to sleep the night there and figure out what's going on and, and kind of assess the rest of the situation tomorrow. That was one of the things we had to kind of think through. Um, we started descending and it was very slow. It took us about six hours from the moment of the fall till we got to the base of the climb. Um, and that was actually sped up because by the time we got to the top of the third pitch, there were people who were preparing to climb it the next day and they had fixed lines. Um, and we said, can we, can we repel down your lines? It would really save us a lot of time. Um, you know, getting the, the haul bag, repelling with it, you know, me moving very slowly, just everything took a lot longer than, than you would expect. It was a process. Like David was, David was a little bit out of it, rightfully so, you know, and I was kind of double checking his systems and like, all right, like, is that, you know, Gregory rig to repel on a single line, like triple checking David. And like, it was kind of one of those moments where like slow is fast and like, you know, didn't want to make another mistake being kind of the adrenaline of it all. And so, you know, there's kind of one of those old climbing adages of like, I think it's the French, you know, like a climbing accident, they like take a moment, smoke a cigarette, and then like, you know, then they go figure it out. Well, we didn't smoke any cigarettes, but I think we we took our time, we were deliberate and we we paused, we need to pause. We didn't try to rush through the process. And I think that helped us get down the thousand feet safely. Yeah. And we knew we had a lot of sunlight. That was our advantage. So we weren't getting anywhere close to night. So, you know, one of the interesting things, I'll tell the story when we, when I lost my approach shoes and one of the insoles came flying out. Well, when I got to the top of the first pitch, it was sitting in the crack right next to the anchors oh, for wow. the first pitch. I don't <laughs> know how luck. in the world that happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ended up getting both of my shoes back. I found them both. And, but we got down to the bottom right as I touched the ground uh, kind of came through the little ice cave at the bottom, turned to the right. There was Jess and Cam walking down the hill. The same rangers that had been climbing earlier in the day. They had already climbed the entire route so fast. They had gone to the top and were looping around by then. Yeah, they had gotten radioed when we when we called in and they said, hey, I think you're going to be needed down at the base. So they were prepared. And so that's one of the reasons why we didn't want to wait too long. They got there and they said, listen, uh, your back is injured your foot, you're not going anywhere. Um, we, we need to get a helicopter up here. And we have about five minutes to make that decision because when you called, we put the helicopter on reserve and that reserve expires in about five minutes. So we need to quickly assess the situation and determine whether we're bringing a helicopter in. The weather's great. The wind is great. Um, let's have them come do a flyby. They did. They assessed that it was going to be a good time to get us. Um, and then this is another thing Grant learned from the show. By the time they call, it goes very quick. We Grant was really smart to think, you know, hey, they're taking Davis Hall bag. I got to hike down off this mountain by myself tomorrow. I'm going to put everything that I don't have to like sleep with or eat in the morning in that hall bag. So smart it goes with There's no way I'm going to get 100 <laughs> pounds of gear out, right? And and like there's kind of this moment while we're waiting for the helicopter, well, it's it's quiet, but I learned on your on your podcast that the moment the helicopter shows up, 
everything happens fast. And, and so, you know, basically threw everything in the haul bag, had to haul it up the steepest embankment I've ever seen. I actually kind of messed up my shoulder in the process a little bit too, but had, you know, got the haul bag to the helicopter extraction point and thank goodness they were able to get the haul bag out because that made it a lot easier because we took the moment to, to plan there. Yeah, way to think on your toes too. Because in the moment, it's like that's something you could totally not think of because you're thinking about so many other things. But yeah, good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of the focus in that moment also was protect, pre, uh, was focused on preparing the landing pad. Um, the climbing rangers and I were running around and finding anything that could get caught up in the rotor wash. Because um, I mean, the, the tolerances here are, are incredible. I mean, some of the most skilled helicopter pilots I've ever seen. You've got these tall pine trees on one side and the face of Half Dome on the other, and the helicopter is to slide in between the two. I mean, we're talking just maybe a dozen feet of clearance. Like 30 feet. Oh yeah, gosh. 20 feet. Of clearance <laughs> on the ropes. And they didn't think that was even that close. But I'm, I'm sweating, you know, um, with the, the clearance <laughs> between the rotor and the wall. So, you know, if, if, if someone were to get blown up, a loose, you know, a, a rope mat or, or something, the helicopter can't, you know, quickly move to, to avoid something like that. So there can't be anything that blows up. So a lot of the focus was on prepping the landing zone. Um, and so, but also, you know, taking the time to prep the haul bag. And, and for me, all of my time was actually trying to figure out how they were going to hook me to the helicopter. There were two options. There's one thing they call a scream suit, which they said is like a big taco that basically your legs just dangle from and then they hook you to um, the, the line on the bottom of the helicopter. Um, I kind of was actually looking forward to that because it would have been a nice uh, view of Yosemite. But my back wasn't in any situation to be kind of crammed in there. So they said, we're going to put you on the litter. Um, and so some of it was getting me to where they could get the litter because they couldn't carry the litter up to the, the the area. So we were all trying to assess, like, what's the best way to get David in the litter um, when the litter gets here? Because it came with the helicopter and two, two assistants. Um, they move really quickly. They, they have lots of really great checks to make sure everyone's safe. Um, and then they got me on the litter and everyone said, oh, I bet it was a really beautiful flight. Unfortunately, all I could see was straight up. So <laughs> I got to see the sun setting over Yosemite and uh, over Half Dome. And then when we landed, I think because it was a golden hour, there had to have been a hundred people lined up along the oh, Wani no, Meadow thousand, with their cameras easily. filming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was pretty crazy. So they they put me into a, a paramedic, assessed me. They said, you know, he's he's mobile. He he got himself down off the mountain. He's not immobile. Um, we can haul you down to Fresno in this ambulance. Uh, I said, but my friend's still up on the mountain. I got a rental car here. I'm doing okay. Maybe I should just spend the night in the backpackers camp. So they they dropped me off in backpackers, gave me some ibuprofen and some crutches, and uh, it was a very painful night. But um, you know, luckily I was able to radio Grant. We had line of sight radio. Um, he was able to call my family um, and and let them know that I was okay. Um, and then he hiked down the next morning, and and we got ourselves down to the Bay Area. Got checked out where I had a, a broken um, calcaneus or my heel. And my L4 vertebra in my back was was compression fractured. So that was a long recovery, taking about six months to get back to climbing again, about three months to performance. But you are climbing. I'm at the climbing gym. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I haven't gotten outside yet. This guy's crazy. We we show up at the at the I was at the climbing gym. He was climbing with some some other friends of his, and I see him there the other night. And like at the start of the evening, he's like, Yeah, you know, I might get on a top rope. I come back like, uh, you know, maybe 20 minutes later, he's giving somebody a lead belay. And I'm like, 
interesting. Come back another 20 minutes later. And David's like leading like a five, six. And I'm like, what are you doing? So you can't keep this guy away from climbing. <laughs> but you feel like you're recovered enough to be able to get back on it. You know, it was about four or five months of not being able to do anything. You know, I had uh, crutches and, and a boot and a back brace. Luckily, no surgery. Um, the the There was no soft tissue issues. There was, you know, a lot of MRIs, a lot of checking on that, a lot of very slow, not doing anything recovery. And the bones have healed very, very well. Now it's a matter of getting both the, like, Good. you know, muscles around the areas to to loosen back up and getting the strength back. Six months of not doing anything really wears on you. You know, and, and so I think we've got some good things we learned, but before we get into that, I just want to take a moment to, to realize just how, you know, really blessed and washed over we were, you know, this accident could have been so much worse. David didn't hit his head. The rope wasn't severed. Um, there's so many little things that, you know, of course things went terribly wrong that day, but you know, it, it really, it really seemed um, evident that there were there were blessings that day, and we're really thankful and, and count those. David, you maybe want to kind of talk about kind of the lesson of of easy terrain being dangerous terrain. <laughs> I mean, the irony of this, everyone's like, "Oh wow!" You, you know, when I talk to people who aren't necessarily climbers, they're like, "Wow, you were on Half Dome doing all this crazy stuff." And I was like, "I was on the easiest part of Half Dome when this happened." And the irony is, you know, that the reason why it's a fourth class terrain is because it's a wash. It's where the water comes down. It's It freezes and thaws a lot. The rock is really loose. It's really unstable. And that's what created all the ledges. And that's what makes it easy terrain. It also makes the rock the least stable rock on the whole mountain. And if I were to have fallen the same fall on something a lot steeper, I would have just fallen, hauled myself back up and kept climbing. But because there were so many ledges, I, I did a lot of bouncing and hitting and that is really where, you know, the compression factor, when I talked to the foot doctor, he was like, oh, back and foot, that goes together. When you fall and you land on your heel, it compresses your back. And so you're going to have back problems as well. Um, so, you know, that came from falling and hitting a ledge. Those are the terrains you see everywhere when you're approaching a climb, when you're comfortable, when you're descending and you're like, ah, this is the easy stuff. I'm putting gear a lot further away. You know, there's all those things that make you feel like you're safer. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I should have listened to the crackling of the rock, um, but I also felt like, oh, this is easy train, no big deal. I'm going to be out of here in a second. I should have, you know, maybe put gear more frequently. I should have been paying attention to more things. When you're close to a ledge, you know, any any ledge fall is a ground fall and you're going to, you know, ankle breakers, they sound really simple when you're when you're reading a guide, but they can be massively disruptive. I mean, I wasn't able to do anything for about four or five months. And, you know, it affected my work. It affected, you know, my, a lot of things in my life. And that's the easy falls. So, you know, that was one thing that I think is a, a big takeaway for me is like thinking about the approaches, thinking about the areas that normally you don't think a lot about. Yeah. And I think that's, it's definitely tough because so much of the terrain that I love, I love like kind of adventure trad romping around, Rocky Mountain National Park, a lot of, you know, five, 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 six, but all of that terrain is ankle breaker terrain. You know, it's hardly ever truly vertical. So definitely tough there and, and makes me reconsider traveling in that terrain. I think the second thing that we really learned was um, practicing a lot. Um, you know, we, we practiced quite a bit before getting on Half Dome, the, the specifics of aid climbing. And I think that really served us well. Um, something that we practiced was repelling 
with a haul bag, even though we were not planning at any point on this climb to repel with a haul bag. You don't bag. normally plan it. Yeah. <laughs> we were, we were going to top out, carry that thing yeah. down. And, um, you know, if we hadn't practiced that, we wouldn't have, you know, been able to get out that evening and get David on the helicopter that night. It would have taken a lot longer. It still wasn't a fast process to rig the rappel with the haul bag. I, I, and it was a tough, it was a challenging anchor up there. We had to leave bail gear. It was not a bolted anchor. It was this rusty piton and a nut. And so I added another nut or two to that. And, you know, so it took a while to rig it, but we had practiced it and we knew how to do it. And, and that practice really, really paid off. Yeah. And one of the things too is, you know, a lot of people will take a, an approach, a, a route like this and they'll say, I can do it in a day, really light, not bring a lot of gear. Um, we, we had to be really prepared, um, to potentially spend the night on the top of six. If I were immobile or not able to get down the mountain, they weren't able to extract us that day. Um, even getting down to the base of the mountain, um, they said, you know, if they'd missed that five minute window, they're like, we're going to have to, we're glad that we did this because otherwise we would have had to bring up a bunch of people tomorrow to come get you. So a lot of times you you'd be planning to spend the night um, if an accident like this happens. It really makes me think about leaving a little bit more margin, not always trying to go quite as fast and light, you know, like, do you have what you need to, to spend the night, you know, even, even if, you know, you think you're fast and quick. Yeah, plan, planning for the worst case scenario. And that includes bringing a little bit extra food and water, you know, bringing like you had radios and you had a cell phone that was charged up probably. And you had a, you said a two-way communication device, like a satellite device that you didn't use, but you still had just in case. So it's adding, it does add some more weight to your pack. But in this case, it did you guys justice? worth its weight in gold. I think the next thing is, you know, gear loops fail. I think we put a lot of trust in gear loops, but they're, you know, they're not rated the same way, you know, your belay loop is. For a fall. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm not entirely certain how they ripped off, but you know, I had two, there was a lot of weight on there. You got your, your hauling device. I got my approach shoes, my water, you know, there's a lot of gear and uh, just rubbing it, just ripped them right out um, pretty easily. And, and having, losing something like your ATC and being able to, to improvise, you know, I was lucky I had another, um, repel device, but if I didn't, you know, you got to know how to tie a meter and know how to repel on one. Yep. <laughs> yep. And then, uh, you know, we've talked about radios, you know, this evening a bit, but radios are awesome. Like they came in clutch on this climb, you know, and I know Rocky talkie has been a big supporter of this podcast. And I, I they personally have, bought yep. Rocky talkies because of this podcast about, about two and a half years ago. Oh, that's great to hear. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and and they were awesome. I mean, so many, you know, communicating even before the accident, um, during the accident, as we went through the rappel. I mean, these are long pitches that you can't really shout, you know. And when things start to go wrong, and, and once Dave is down there, you know, knowing what he was doing and his plan for tiptoeing back, you know, if you, if you couldn't hear each other, it would have been a million times harder. And then even when he was down in the valley, for those who have been to Yosemite Valley, the cell phone service is squirrely in that place. And I actually had service up on like the the base of the route, but down in the valley, David had no service. So we were basically able to relay communication. I got in touch with his wife and his family and were able to let them know what was going on. And we couldn't have done that without the Rocky Talkies. 
shout out to Rocky Talkie. <laughs> if you don't have a set, get yourself a set. Get 10% off by using code SHARPEND. That's my little plug. Okay, moving on. <laughs> well, the other the other product that kind of came out of it was um, after the act. So, so first aid kit was really, really important to us. And, you know, having a first aid kit was was really important because we got the unit dose pain medications in David really quickly, which, you know, meant the swelling didn't get out of control. He was, you know, able to focus on the task at hand of rigging his rappel device and getting down and, and then also realizing, you know, you know, most of his injuries were internal, but had he fallen in any way slightly different and there could have been massive trauma, you know, tumbling down this chimney gully thing, you know, 60 feet. Um, and so after, after the accident, I, I kind of got to thinking and I did something I've been, I've been kind of dreaming about for a while. And I started actually a first aid kit company, um, called peak first aid. And, um, I basically designed ultralight first aid kits for, um, climbers, backcountry skiers, all the folks who are getting out there and, and recreating and, and try to basically put the real essentials, especially with an emphasis on stopping major bleeding in as lightweight and compact of a waterproof pouch as, as possible. And you were inspired to create Peak First Aid and create this sort of gold star, uh, minimalist, but everything you need in, in terms of uh, stopping a major bleed first aid kit in a, you were inspired by this incident with David. Precisely. Yeah. You know, I had built kind of a prototype kit a long time before because I had been so fed up with the other first kid kits on the market and I didn't feel like any of them fit my needs or, or they were either really, really heavy and never would go, you know, it would take up an entire backpack or were, were so light and just kind of full of, full of band-aids that wouldn't actually treat major bleeding. Um, and I had built my own kit and it was kind of my kit and I was really proud of it. But then, you know, after this accident started to read and wow, every, you know, everybody else is having accidents too. And, you know, the mountains are a dangerous place and, and, uh, injuries happen. And I wish everybody had access to, to first aid supplies like this. And so, yeah, I was inspired to, to make sure everybody had access to the best first aid kits. Well, I will make sure to put uh, peak first aid is at peakfirstaid.com. Yep. Peakfirstaid.com. Make sure to put that, your website in the show notes so people can access it. Um, and I think that's really, really noble and kind of you um, and selfless of you. Like, you know, you, hey, I want this first aid kit for myself. Oh, and then you and you build it. But then you're like, man, I actually want to offer this amazing service to everybody else too. So that's really, th thank you for that. Yeah. I would invite everybody to check it out. Really, really think if your, your, your current first aid kit is, is up to the task and it matches the intensity of your adventures. Um, and, you know, I'm uh, giving 15% off to, to listeners of the Sharp End podcast with code SHARPEND. And so I would just encourage everybody to, uh, to go out and get a peak first aid kit. And if you want to know what's in this first aid kit, stay tuned for the February 15th, 2024 episode, Dropping Live, bonus episode with Grant and Peak First Aid to tell you all about what is in that kit. <laughs> <laughs> well, those are some really great, um, great lessons learned. Um, do you have any other lessons learned or anything to, to add before we close this, close the episode up? Yeah, I mean, I'll just tell you one little thing. We were talking about what are the things you would do differently. You know, when we were talking with uh, Jess and Cam afterwards, they're like, you you know, this is one of these accidents that happens. You didn't do anything wrong. You actually did a lot of the right things and, and they happen. And it could have been a lot worse. And yeah, I probably could have done something different, but, you know, I'm, I'm here and alive. The one thing when people say, do you have any regrets? I say, the one regret 
is that I didn't stop and take a picture of the area where I was because I have told so many people about this accident and tried to describe what happened. And if, <laughs> you know, you're in the moment, you're not thinking about it, but I wish that I could say, this is what happened. This is where I was. So it's a little thing, but um, that was one thing I wish that I could have done differently. What about you, Grant? Would you have done anything differently? I think it's hard to say. I think, as David said, we did a lot of things right, right, you know. And of course, you could say, "Oh, just not place a piece there," you know. And that's that's a little a little too easy to say. And it's it's hard coming from an accident like this when, you know, we we talked the whole accident through with with you know Yosemite basically their accident investigation team for all these purposes. And I actually think our accident's going to be in in uh, accidents in uh, the the American Alpine Club uh, accidents in North America publish. Uh, publication in about a year, but it's it's tough when the takeaways you know have to basically spit you out. You know, if yeah. if it was you gave a bad belay or you tied a knot wrong or you rigged something poorly, be like, oh, I can just not do that next time. Yeah, but it's it's really hard um, to think about. You know, this was to some level kind of the inherent risk, and every time you go climbing, there's a bit of a gamble, and sometimes you you come up, you know, on, and the, the, the house wins. And, um, so I feel like I'm still kind of on a bit of a journey of, of reevaluating what, what my climbing looks like. So I don't think I regret going on half dome. I think I learned a lot and I think it's going to impact me for the rest of my life. And I don't exactly know, you know, what I, I want climbing to look like. I know that I'm going to build some more margin into my adventures. I know I'm going to carry a first aid kit, but, um, but I don't exactly know what the future holds for climbing. Um, and I think that's okay. And, and it definitely does cause you to, to like be thinking more about your escape plan if something bad goes happen. You know, we were at the beginning of a big traverse area. If we had traversed any further, you know, how would we rappel down? Where, where are the places that we would rappel down? Um, we were lucky that we were in Yosemite and they have an amazing, well-funded um, rescue service. Oh, we amazing. In Black Canyon of the Gunnison. If we were somewhere else, you know, like, you're gonna get yourself out. Yeah, Yosemite is top notch. The best in the world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so, and having rescue insurance, you know, we were very lucky that the National Park um, uh, helped to, to provide that service. But if we were anywhere else, we'd be footing that bill. And, you know, so these things are all things that you don't think about because you think you're invincible, but they catch up with you very quickly. Thank you so much to Grant and David for sharing the story and thank you for listening to my podcast. If you learned something from this episode or any of the Sharpen episodes, please tell a friend or family member. Spread the word about my podcast. Help me get these stories out into our outdoor community so we can all learn to minimize future outdoor accidents. And don't forget, like and subscribe to the Sharpen podcast channel on YouTube. Can't get enough climbing stories? The American Alpine Club podcast is your guide to the climbing community, exploring the many ways we define climbing and the ways that climbing defines us. In recent episodes, the AAC podcast interviewed a Yosemite climbing ranger on climbing ethics, talked to the woman who set the fastest known time on the Rainier Infinity Loop, and did a deep dive with search and rescue volunteers on their most harrowing climbing rescues. You can find episodes like this and more on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts. And as always, remember, play hard and be smart.